0: Our passage this morning is from Joshua chapter seven, a few segments of verses. Um, You can find them in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Joshua chapter seven, verses one through five. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two to 3,000 men go up and attack Ai do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shibarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now verses 19 through 21. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, And a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now, verses 24 through 26. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Acre. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning to all of you. It's such a joy for Molly and me to be back at Lake Baldwin Church. We've been away. We've been traveling, a little bit of vacation, a little bit of ministry, and some working with uh, churches who are international partners. And there, I I can tell you this: there is no place like Lake Baldwin Church. And when we came back last week, it was so good to feel welcome, so good to be back with you all. And we're really uh, so grateful to be here this morning. And and I am honored that Brian has asked me to preach this particular passage of Scripture Uh, as as it was being read. You might think, Wow, this has got some unusual things in this passage of Scripture, but. I'm really honored to follow in the steps of a a fantastic series on Joshua as Brian has been preaching and as Eric Rome preached last Sunday, and it was so good to hear all of that. And uh, so as we, before we look into this passage though, what I'd like to do is I'd like us to again bow in prayer together, not only to pray for this sermon and for our hearts, but there's a couple of individuals I'd like us to uh, pray for. Together. Uh, one is Eric Baugh. You might, a lot of you know Eric, but some of you don't. He has been one of our college students over the years, involved with the Navigators. And last Sunday was his last Sunday, and he is off to New Zealand as part of the Navigators Edge Corps. So he's going to be a two year missionary, and I want it known by Eric that his church family prayed for him. So we're going to take a moment and just pray for him this morning. The other is John Gilbert. Uh, John Gilbert uh, has not been at church for a while, but he is the oldest member of our church. He has um, has been diagnosed with a, a serious and terminal form of cancer, but God has been sustaining his life, and he is at home today. He's a veteran of the Korean War, and as a way of, to acknowledge um, uh, You know, the the special day, Veterans Day, all of our veterans, and to pray, an opportunity really for us as a church to pray for John Gilbert. So would you join me as we pray together? Our Father in heaven, uh, there are so many exciting things that you are doing in this church, and we're so grateful that we can come before you today in prayer to know that we have a God who hears the prayers of our hearts. And we want to take a moment as a church family to pray for Eric. We thank you for his years with us, um, his ministry at UCF, the many friends that he has in this room. And yet he's taken a step of faith to go to New Zealand to be involved uh, as a missionary, as your servant, uh, all the way across the world. And we pray that you would keep him safe, that your Holy Spirit would empower his ministry, and that even on this day, you would encourage him and let him know that his church loves him and prayed for him. And for John Gilbert, Lord, we do give thanks for all of the veterans in our church, those who have served our country. Uh, We know that Veterans Day is a very special day for John Gilbert. And even though he's not bodily with us today because he's bound up in his home, we want to pray for his physical comfort, we pray, we know he's enjoying your spiritual comfort because he encourages us so much. But on, the, on those days that feel dark or doubtful, we pray that the light of your comfort and joy would minister to him. And we give you thanks for the powerful work of his life in our church and in the lives of many. We pray you'd continue your gracious work in his family as well. And now, Lord, as we come to your holy word, uh, we, we even have in this passage some things that would raise questions in our minds. Uh, but at the same time, Lord, there is a message here, a message of warning and challenge for each one of us. And so would you open up our hearts as we hear your word today, and we pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Well, thanks for joining with me in prayer. So um, there's an old story about a Navy warship that was heading through fog one night when a distant and faint light appeared in the fog. And these words came over the intercom that were heard by the Admiral of this ship. These words, attention, calling the vessel traveling 18 knots on a 220 heading, adjust your course 30 degrees immediately. The captain got on the radio and responded, this is the vessel on the 220 heading, you adjust your course 30 degrees. Negative, captain, came the reply, you adjust. To which the captain responded, I am an admiral in the United States Navy, said the commander. Who am I speaking to? And the voice came back, I am an ensign in the US Coast Guard. To which the Admiral repri- replied, then I suggest you adjust your course. The ensign replied, no sir, I suggest that you adjust your course. The Admiral said, we are a US Navy warship, you adjust. And the ensign replied, we are a lighthouse <laughs> so a lot of times in life where we want things to go our way and we sort of forget our limitations and we forget who are who we are and on our worst days we might even be some of us be willing to say to God God why don't you adjust but we come to a Bible that we don't edit we don't have the authority To edit. In fact, the Bible edits us and the Bible edits our hearts. And so we're going to take a look at this story today. But one of the things I want you to take from that lighthouse story is that if you think about what that lighthouse was, the lighthouse was like a warning to to that warship on a foggy night to change course. And so even though the admiral was frustrated by that lighthouse, the lighthouse was a warning. And one of the things we want to see from this passage of Scripture is that Joshua chapter 7 is a warning passage. It is a warning about several things. For example, it is a warning about hidden sin. We learn here the famous story, the story of Achan and sin in the camp. It's a warning about that. It's a warning about the wrath and the anger of God. Now, sometimes you and I, when we come to passages of Scripture, we hear a lot about the fact that God is love, that God is mercy, that God is grace, and he certainly is, but we forget the fact that God also god also is a God of justice and holiness and wrath. And so some of us might, in this room, when we read like that in verse one where it says that the anger of the Lord burned, against the people of Israel, the risk is that we would compare God's anger to our anger. And I think about the anger of Mike Tilly. It is, uh, it's random. It's, it's, it's all over the map. It's not, it's not a healthy, righteous anger. But when the Bible talks about the anger and the wrath of God, what it's talking about is God's, God's response to evil in the world, he is a holy God. And I love what Eric Rose, or Eric Rome said last week when he said, if we did not have a God of justice, we would not want that God. The anger of God and the wrath of God are his righteous and holy response to evil and injustice in the world. Now for us in 2022, that might sound like a foreign concept, might be somewhat new to us, and we might think, well, it's just the God of the Old Testament, but no, it's the God of the New Testament as well, the anger and the wrath of God. And if we, if we doubt that, the fact that we don't, we don't put a, as much of a stock in it today as they did before, I would encourage you to go back and read a hymn, a famous hymn and song called The Battle Hymn of the Republic. It was written in 1862. It was written by an abolitionist. And the Battle Hymn of the Republic, if you read the words of that, you realize that there were people in our country who believed that because of slavery, our country was under the wrath of God. And there was a whole hymn written about it that has endured to this day. You see, the anger of God is his righteous response to evil and injustice. And so one of the takeaways from this passage today is I would like for all of us to see this passage as a warning passage about hidden sin and a warning passage about the anger of God. In effect, we need to see this story and read it as a lighthouse. The first readers of this story were probably after the time of Joshua. Some of the readers of this story we were in exile in the Babylonian exile, God's people. So when they would read this story, they would, need to be, they would need to look back at last week's sermon on Joshua chapter six, which is all about the conquest of Jericho. It's all about victory. It's all about success. And so the readers back then who would read that story would be encouraged by the promises of God and the success of their battle at Jericho. However. There's also Joshua chapter 7 and that stands as a lighthouse and as a warning so that people in the Babylonian captivity would not compromise with sin that they would not forget about the Lord they would be so tempted to do that in our culture and so or in their culture and in the same way this passage represents for all of us in this room a warning that is a lighthouse For us to go and look back and so some ways I'd rather be teaching Joshua 6 uh, because it was a victorious passage but God has this passage in the Bible for a reason and it's for us we're gonna have a three-point outline uh, this morning so we're gonna talk about first of all this this warning passage the warning of a stunning defeat and we'll see that in verses 1 through 5 Secondly, we're going to talk talk about the warning about hidden sin, and that is in verses 19 to 21. That was read to you by Kate. And then finally, the mercy of a door of hope. The mercy of a door of hope, and that's towards the end of the chapter, and we'll close with that. Let's talk, first of all, about the warning of a stunning defeat. The warning of a stunning defeat. Now, you might wonder Why is this defeat in battle that they have such a stunning defeat? Well, they had just won the battle of Jericho. If, If the people of Israel had been a business, you would have said that they were just blowing and going. They were so successful. If they had been a football team like the University of Georgia, you would have said they don't even need their first string team to go play somebody like Troy State or somebody else because they're a steamroller that cannot be stopped. But I wanna go back and look at this stunning defeat because I want all of us to hear the warning of this passage and so it's on the screen behind me. Let's look again at Joshua 7, one through five and let's, I'm gonna read through it again but make some comments about this stunning defeat by Israel. It says in verse one, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan the son of Carmi the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now you and I read verse 1, and it talks about the devoted things, and we might not understand why this is so significant. But if you go back last week to Joshua chapter 6, There was actually a warning in that passage that when you conquered Jericho, you are not to take the devoted things, that everything had to be devoted to God. And it's very similar, if you want to make this comparison in your mind, if you go back to the original sin of mankind in the garden with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, remember God gave them instructions, you could eat from any tree in the garden, but from this one tree you cannot eat. So that was the warning that God gave to them. And of course, Eve succumbed to that temptation and ate from that tree. And it's interesting that all of humanity was affected by the fall of Adam and Eve. So what's happened here is that Achan has taken the devoted things. Let's keep reading and take a look at verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of the Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. This is what they used to always do, send out spies to the land. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So again, they're on a roll. It could be that... What's happening here is that they are overconfident. University of Georgia is overconfident going into that next football game. So let's just send our B team. We don't need to worry about it. Verse four, so about 3,000 men went up, up there from the people and they fled before the men of Ai, their opponent, their enemy. And in verse five, the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim, and struck them at the descent and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So this was a stunning, really surprising defeat that the people are going through after Jericho. So we see that it was a stunning defeat. It was a warning because it got their attention. If you look again at verse five, it says, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. These are the same words that Rahab spoke about the Canaanites. And so now the people of Israel are having that same fear that they are going to lose. They're like the the Canaanites using those very words. And so it got their attention. By the way, it's also interesting in this passage is it says that all Israel sinned. Now you and I know in the rest of the story, it it was Achan's fault. He took the devoted things. So why why does it say that all Israel sinned? There's a couple of ways of looking at that. One is that the Bible teaches the concept of corporate solidarity. A little bit different for Americans where we're so individualistic, but the Bible teaches with Adam and Eve sin that all of us sinned in Adam and became sinners and became guilty. In a way, you've got a similar thing going on here, but the other thing that's happening is that perhaps all of Israel was overconfident and perhaps there was a... Um, sort of a complacency that had set in so that somebody like, uh, like Achan would actually compromise with sin and think he can get away with it. So it's interesting how there's a community effect. One of the lessons of this is that when you and I sin, it affects everyone. Is it, there's, there is no sin that, oh, that's, that's just gonna affect me or that's just gonna affect my family. That's not the way it works. When you and I fall into sin, it has an effect that is like a, uh, it's, it gets contagious. It has a broader effect, and that's what's happening here. So it's a stunning defeat. And I want to ask you this question. I wonder if you, as you look back over your life, have had some stunning defeats. Maybe it was a, uh, a business setback. Maybe it was a loss of a job. Maybe it was a relationship that went sideways and it hasn't been restored yet. Or maybe some of you experienced a ministry defeat. I want to share with you about a defeat that, uh, that a, a, a stunning defeat for me uh, that happened in the early life of our church. It was the third year of our church. The first two years of Lake Baldwin Church, it was like Jericho. We were blowing and going. We were seeing success. God was doing great things. But the third year of our church, all sorts of t- torpedoes hit the boat. And I don't know whether we were overconfident, I don't know what it was, but there were all sorts of things that just went wrong. And it was literally the worst year of my professional life to have to go through the stunning defeats that we went through that year. It was very tempting for me to think about why those defeats happened. Now I want to assure you that when you go through something like this, there's not always a direct correlation between I sinned, so this must not, must not, it would not have happened if I had not sinned. There's not always a connection there. But one of the things that I needed to do when I was going through these stunning defeats is it was very tempting for me to look around and blame other people and to blame my circumstances. And I remember I, was, I had a phone call with somebody in our church at one of the lowest moments that I was going through. And when I talked to this person, I just vented. And I'm sure that venting had lots of blaming of other people and lots of rationalization and a lot of defensiveness. And I vented for a long time to this person. And this person uh, listened patiently and then said these words. Maybe God is holding your little twinkle toes To the fire and I will never forget those words you guys because what I realized what was going on is that I was being humbled by the defeats that were happening in our church I was learning things about myself that I had blind spots I was getting in touch with pride in my life I was getting in touch with where I did not fully understand the gospel the way that my wife did or other people did I was getting in touch with the fact that I needed to grow. And it reminds me, I think, of a good understanding of Hebrews 12, where it says to endure hardship as discipline and as training. And you start to see that a merciful God brought about some defeats in the life of Mike Tilly and the life of our church. Because he had a better plan. You see, God wants to not only do stuff to you, he wants to do stuff in you so that he can do stuff through you. And I think that's what's happening here. There was a famous football coach of the Chicago Bears years ago, a guy by the name of Mike Ditka. And I'll never forget an interview I saw with Mike Ditka after an awful loss by the Chicago Bears, his team. And he got up there in that interview, he says, every time we get on the field, we either teach or we learn. Today we learned. I think Joshua could have done that interview. Every time we get on the field, every time we go to the battle, we either teach or we learn. And he should have said, today we learned. Well, speaking of Joshua, he actually fell on his knees before the Lord after this defeat, and He was really discouraged. He thought God's promises were failing. You know the name of the series, Possessing God's Promises? He thought God's promises were failing. But it wasn't God's promises that were failing. It was that Achan and the people of Israel had violated the covenant of their God and that they were disobedient to God, and that became the issue. And so endure hardship as discipline that maybe God has something to teach us through that, something to work into our character. And I actually believe that that's not only a warning, but it is a merciful warning. That year of 2008 was one of the most difficult years of my whole life, but I can honestly look back and say, God was merciful to me. Well, let's talk about the second warning, the warning about hidden sin. That's in Joshua 7, verses 19-19. To twenty-one, and uh, so there's a lot of territory we're not covering because we want to zero one in these things. I want to talk talk about the warning of hidden sin. Let's look at this passage and what's happening here, beginning at verse nineteen of Joshua seven. You'll see it on the screen behind me. It says, "Then Joshua, verse nineteen. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done." Do not hide it from me. Did you notice the tone of Joshua here? My son, go ahead and tell me. Verse 20, and Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. Now, before we get to verse 21, one of the things I'd like to encourage you to think about is the times that you have fallen into hidden sin. And don't tell me you haven't. Because I have, and I believe you have as well. We all face this temptation to hidden sin, sin that we commit, and then we hide it. And I want you to think about what was the process when you fell into temptation, when you fell into compromise? What, what was that process like? Well, look at what he says here in, uh, in verse 21. Aiken says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar. I wonder what that was like for him. Man, I'd love to have a car like that. I'd love to have a TV like that. I'd love to have a house like that. I'd love to have a coat just like that one. He saw that coat from Shinar. He says, and 200 shekels of silver And a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. So the first thing he did was he saw it. You see, sometimes sin begins that way. As we see something like that. And look at what happens next. He says, and then I coveted them. Now I don't know how Achan knew to use the word covet. Except for the fact that it's it's in the Ten Commandments. It's the Tenth Commandment. It's a warning against, co- against coveting. He says, I coveted them, and I took them. So that was the second thing. He saw them, but the next thing was that something was happening in his heart that he was coveting something that God did not want him to have. I wonder if you've ever done that. I wonder if you've ever felt coveting in your heart and how it affects you. I saw, I coveted, and then the third thing was I took I just took it something made him just blow through the stop sign on that day I'm just gonna blow through the rules and nothing's gonna stop me now the weird thing is remember he is a warship headed for a lighthouse that isn't gonna move but I don't know what it is inside of our souls and inside of our hearts that we go I'm just gonna blow past that rule It's like we want something so bad, and and that's what he does does here. And then it says um, that after that, what he did was, he says, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath, so he took it and hid it. So he wanted to take his sin, he wanted to hide it. So this is really a warning against hidden sin. Some years ago, I was working for uh, a corporation, an organization, actually a missions organization, and somebody in the organization had figured out how to do this. In other words, how to look, how to covet, and how to take. What they did was they were padding their reimbursements. So they might go on a trip and, and say, I want that pair of boots on that trip, and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going I'm I'm to figure out a way to charge that to my travel account, to my reimbursements, and there was a friend of his. Over time, it grew to like fifty. Over time, it grew to like fifty thousand dollars that had been embezzled, but it was hidden. We didn't even know about it. And one day, a friend came along, and asked him about it, and it all was brought out into the open, and it was all brought out into the clear. Why I learned so much from watching that happen. I saw that individual. I saw how easy it is to fall into looking and coveting and taking to the point where even a Christian can say, "I'm going to be fifty thousand dollars ahead." Now, what are, what are the things that we fall into? What are our hidden sins? Well, you can usually group them, as people often do, in the categories of of sex and money and power being domineering. But there are other things that you and I struggle with, I think, that we go through where, whether smaller or larger ways, we do this. Maybe it's where we nurture a lack of forgiveness toward another person. Here's actually a passage in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, when you come before the altar of God, to bring your offering to God. If you remember that your brother has someone against you, first go be reconciled to your brother. Uh, One of the things I think that Christians have fallen into in our day and time is the ability to apply the gospel to broken relationships and to not extend forgiveness, not extend grace, and live with unreconciled relationships. And it feels good. We get our own type of revenge. But can you imagine what it would be like this morning if some of us would take a step to go see someone and to say to them, "Um, I know you have something against me. I've hurt you. How can I make it right? Do you realize what gospel healing would come from something like that? Now, I want to say a word to those of us. I, I think this passage can be so difficult because there are those of us that have had hidden sins and we don't know what to do about it. The good news that the Bible is clear. The Bible calls us to confess our sins. The Bible calls us to cast ourselves on Christ for his forgiveness. That's why I loved our time of confession this morning as a church. I think we get to practice this rhythm every week in our time of confession. It's the part of our service that I cherish the most. Sometimes I'm sitting and I'm I'm finding out something I didn't realize it was a hidden sin in my life. But God's word is so powerful. There's a promise in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's because Christ, our advocate, has died for those sins. Now, my friend that did the embezzlement thing, uh, it wasn't like a one-off deal. Hey, I'm sorry, let's keep moving. It wasn't that at all. He lost his position. He had to pay back the money because there are consequences from our sin. He had to make things right. And so a biblical understanding of the gospel is that the gospel offers us a wonderful opportunity to bring things out of the darkness into the light, to thank God for his amazing forgiveness, and then renew our obedience to God and make restitution where necessary to make things right. Now, you guys, that might seem like a tall order, but God is not surprised by your sin. He knows it. In this case, the community had to wrestle with it and deal with it. And that leads us to the last section of the passage, the mercy of a door of hope. Could you look at that with me? That's in Joshua 7, verses 24 to 26. And the community had been instructed by God to deal with this in a certain way. Uh, People were executed back then by stoning. In Roman times, it was by the cross. But they had to actually deal as a community with this sin. And so look at verse 24. And Joshua and all Israel with him, took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Remember that location. Achor means trouble. In fact, verse 25, Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and so this is the the pouring out of the judgment of God as He had promised in Joshua chapter six of what would happen in this situation. It's a great example of Romans six twenty three that says the wages of sin is death. So they were stoned with stones. In verse twenty six, they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day then the Lord turned from his burning anger, and and therefore to this day the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Now as you read that passage, one of the things that you get in touch with is the awfulness of one person dying for the many. That's what's happening in this passage because it says at the end that the Lord turned away his anger. And it might be that you and I would look at that and I would say to us, lest we think that this passage is harsh, we are reminded here of one who suffered the cruel death of the cross bearing the wrath of God in our place. You see, while, while Achan was actually guilty, Jesus was innocent. And the Bible teaches that one died for the many, and Jesus died for our sins. I like the commentary in the spirit of the Reformation studied the Bible, Bible about what's going on about God's wrath here. He says, It says, God's wrath being righteous ceases when sin has been dealt with. And so you'll notice this wonderful verse at the end. It says, The Lord turned away from his burning anger. Now you might go, Wow, that, that story is just so, so moving and so vis- visceral and, and and, this, and to watch this death. But we forget about the fact that for all of us in this room, our only hope of forgiveness of sins is that there was a perfect one who took the curse for us on the cross and died for us. Jesus Christ was our covenant head. We have broken the covenant just like all Israel did. The Bible says judgment begins with the household of God. And so we have broken the covenant, but the Bible teaches that there's been a door of hope that is open because Christ, as our covenant head and our representative died for our sins and he fully obeyed and fulfilled the covenant for us. And this is why we so appreciate the good news of the gospel for us. I wanna close by looking at this door of hope that we're referring to in this passage so you'll notice on the screens Hosea chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 because it's really the rest of the story the valley of Achor was a valley of trouble but I want you to notice what happens in these two verses in the book of Hosea this is entitled the Lord's mercy on Israel therefore behold I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her And I wonder if this morning some of you with hidden sin in your heart can hear the mercy of God to you where it says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. I want you to hear those words. Look at verse 15, and then I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The same valley. The same valley with that pile of stones to make the valley of Achor a door of hope and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. I want to say to those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ this morning that this passage is a warning not to all the bad guys that we think are out there in the world. This passage is a warning to the church. It is a challenge for us to come to him for forgiveness and to renounce our sins. And I wonder what kind of revival the church in America could experience if we laid aside our complacency, if we laid aside our hidden sins and we came clean, and we brought everything out into the light, and we repented and had a new beginning of obedience to God. Now, I know there are some of you here this morning that this stuff is kind of new to you, and you wonder, what does this mean to me if I'm not a believer in Jesus Christ? I want to talk to you about this door of hope for just a minute. Have you all seen the uh, Broadway musical Hamilton? The musical Hamilton, one of the most popular musicals of all time, is based upon the life of Alexander Hamilton as recorded in the biography by Ron Chernow. It's one of the best biographies I've ever read. Alexander Hamilton was responsible for our banking system. He advocated for our Constitution, had an amazing impact, but he had hidden sin throughout his life. He was on the doorstep of death as a result of a duel and was dying. And a pastor by the name of Reverend Mason visited with Alexander Hamilton. The duel was with Aaron Burr. And Alexander Hamilton was on his deathbed. Reverend Mason, the pastor, came to Hamilton and told of how Christ's blood would take away his sins. That ought to remind us of Joshua 7 and remind us of the larger story of the gospel. I want you to hear what Alexander Hamilton said when the gospel came to him because this is the door of hope for Alexander Hamilton. And I believe that if you're you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, it's the same door of hope for you that we have discovered. Here's what Alexander Hamilton said to Reverend Mason. He said, I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he died, Alexander Hamilton made his choice. There is a door of hope for you. Will you make your choice? Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we stand before you as a holy and awesome God. Many things in this passage are very sensitive, and so I pray for my brothers and sisters, all of us in this room who have tender hearts, feel the need for the cleansing blood of Christ today. And so we praise you for your mercy, for your justice, and for this door of hope. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.